2: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Nick Cage Smooch's Good Edition. It's Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. On today's show, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is a meta-comedy action thriller starring Nick Cage as himself or a version of himself. It also stars Pedro Pascal and Sharon Horgan. And then Breaking Bad of course has a prequel spin-off uh, Better Call Saul. It's coming back for its 6th season. We'll be joined by Isaac Butler to discuss. And finally its founder has said Twitter is the closest thing to a global consciousness. Well, <laughs> global consciousness is about to become the lock, stock, and barrel possession of Elon Musk. We'll be joined by Washington Post tech columnist Will Aremus to discuss the implications of this fact. Joining me today are Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the uh, LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate and the author of the hit book, Cameraman, a uh, beautiful book-length essay about the career of Buster Keaton. Uh, Things still has legs, right?
3: I guess so. I just went to LA, saw Julia there, actually, and, uh, and did some some book promotion. So I guess people still want to hear about it. So I'm going to keep on talking about it.
2: <laughs> Marvelous. Are uh, we ready to make a show? Please. All right. Very good. The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent stars Nick Cage is a kind of live action cartoon version of himself. So right away, we're like meta on meta on meta here because Nick Cage is already a kind of live action cartoon of himself. Uh, The joke here is that this shtick, it just isn't working anymore. His star is fading. The offers are drying up. He's turned into something of an embarrassment uh, to his wife and kid. So he decides to take a famous person's dead-ender of a gig. He'll get a million dollars for flying to Mallorca and hanging out with a rich fan on his birthday. There, however, in Spain, he gets a double surprise. The rich fan is an incredibly sweet, like really endearing Spanish, you know, sort of middle-aged rich kid who adores Cage. And the two legitimately hit it off. They become fast buddies. The second surprise comes when the CIA recruits Cage on the fly to spy on his new buddy, uh, who they claim is a ruthless crime boss. The film stars Pedro Pascal as his host and Sharon Horgan as his wife. Uh, Why don't we listen to a clip? In this scene, Javi Gutierrez, played by Pascal, is trying to convince Nick Cage not to quit acting.
4: I'm sorry, but you can't quit acting. You can't. That's none of your business. Whether you like it or not, you have a gift. And that gift brings light and joy to an increasingly dark and broken world. And to turn your back on that gift is to turn your back on the entire human race. The human race? I'm afraid so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad.
2: To hear this little preview of your reaction to this movie, I I laughed all the way through it. That's fabulous, Julia. Oh my God, you're losing your, you g- gather yourself, woman. Uh, all right, well, Dana, since you're uh, 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 the one remaining model of composure on this panel, I'll start with you. Uh, this movie is uh, a romp. It's kind of silly uh, in its own way. What'd you, uh, what'd you make of it?
3: I mean, I was both amused by portions of this movie, even delighted by some parts, mainly scenes like that scene and some later ones where, you know, we just get really goofy buddy comedy between, you know, this fake outsized version of the already outsized Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal. I mean, that that bro bonding kind of stuff is golden in this movie. Incredibly well written, well acted and charming. However, this movie also disappoints in some ways to me. I mean, it also has this crime plot that you mentioned that I think seemed incredibly underscripted and disappointing. There's this whole side story where Tiffany Haddish is a CIA agent who's surveilling them. And she and Ike Barinholtz, another CIA agent, are trying to solve the mystery of, you know, this Spanish crime boss while following them around. And there's all kinds of action scenes based on that, that to me started to feel really generic by the end. I don't know. I mean, in general, I would send people to this movie if they liked that scene and laughed at it as Julia did. And if they're interested in Nick Cage and the myth of Nick Cage, which I think is actually a fascinating thing to explore, but which, again, this movie could have done with another script pass to explore that meta side of itself better. Uh, Another ongoing theme in this movie is that Nick Cage's younger self, played by a digitally de-aged Nick Cage, styled like his early 90s, you know, over-the-top persona, comes and scolds him for having let his career slide so much. But there's something about that metaverse that doesn't quite make sense because, in fact, it's not the case that Nick Cage's career is in decline, nor is it the case that he only takes crass action blockbuster roles. In fact, just last year we talked about him in Pig, right? This very unusual indie that he appeared in that was, you know, incredibly introspective and was very uh, just a, a very strange vehicle for somebody who's a big star. In fact, if anything, Nick Cage's career has been characterized by wildly swerving between arty kinds of roles and, you know, big He-Man action roles. And you never know what Nick Cage is going to do next, which is part of the charm. So I guess I wish that there had been a more interesting meta story attached to him than just, ah, he's a broken down drunk who needs to pull himself together. Um, I think maybe a smarter investigation of his career would have gotten even more meta and kind of looked at what he's been doing all along that's been so self-reflexive. I mean, this is the guy who's already played two of himself in Adaptation, right? Uh, and he's changed faces with John Travolta in Face Off. And he's always been somebody who plays with identity. You can actually probably tell that I'm writing a piece on this right now. I'm writing about Nick Cage, not just in this movie, but you know, as a very um, metaverse inhabiting actor from the beginning. And I don't think this movie is as smart and as funny a movie as he deserves, but in mm-hmm. stretches it is funny
2: enough. Dana, yeah, Julia, it sounds like you and I may agree about this movie, but uh, it sounds like Dana needed a like a tincture of Charlie Kaufman or something. What about you? Did you? Uh, send she, she, something needed, she needed.
0: She needed to drop acid before seeing this movie, as, as <laughs> happens in the film, which apparently you did. So <laughs> I loved this movie. I just thought this movie was like pure joy in cinema form. And I realized that this is becoming a creaky trope of our show that every week based on whether or not I like the movie that we saw, I pronounce film dead or alive, (laughs) but now having seen everything everywhere all at once. And then this movie in a row, I'm like two super fun, creative movies that do totally funny things and entertain me for an hour. And we're not about Marvel villains or comics or the Batman or, um, yeah, or, 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 uh, also, and neither of them seem like um, kind of turgid Oscar bids. Like, what a delight. What a joy. What a, what a beautiful house in Mallorca. What a hilariously over emotive <laughs> performance by Pedro Pascal. What <laughs> yeah, a oh, like yeah. Riley self acknowledging. I mean, like, yes, I guess there is a version of this movie that is like actually grappling in the most serious possible way with the contours of the true Nick Cage's career, but like, no, it's not that much of a stretch to imagine Nick Cage as, you know, the the washed up star of Con Air and just like a lied pig out of the picture. And like, you know, he does famously have like debt troubles and spending troubles. And he sort of, <laughs> he, yes, he re, I mean like maybe it would have made more sense for this to come out before Pig instead of after. But he kind of has had a little bit less prominence and centrality and visibility. It's not too far of a stretch. But I don't think the movie needs to be like a deeply accurate summation of his wrestling with his whole career to be just an utter fucking delight from beginning to end. Like,
2: Yeah, it's a UFD. I agree. It's an utter fucking delight. Julia, you have given me the courage to believe in myself again because I <laughs> laughed my ass off all alone in a fucking movie theater for 90 plus, 100 minutes or whatever it was. And I was like, am I... Like, fucked up on, like, did I take cold medicine and I've forgotten or something? Like, what, why am I, I dug it so much. I thought the early portion of the movie was sharp. I thought it was really sharply drawn and, in fact, was getting at something, you know, it was getting at something subtle through the broadest channel possible, which is that persona and person just blend together for people who've become stars in a way that's, you know, because you're sort of playing yourself. If you're a movie star by definition, right, like academics agree, the definition is you are partially or substantially playing yourself in movie after movie after movie, and people go back to see you as X, not Not an actor as X, right? You do not fully disappear into the role if you're Jack Nicholson. That's not what your audience wants. And Cage is that on steroids, to use a tired (laughs) metaphor, but he is. And and it it has bled into and infected his life. The second thing I thought it was in a way poignant about was that, you know, in the method by Isaac Butler, who's coming on the show later, he writes about the the uh, uh, emergence in the 1980s of an anti-method style, with I would suppose Tom Cruise and Nick Cage as two of his principal examples. Like Cruise, who thinks, as always, explicitly thought about acting as from the outside in. He literally studied himself in the mirror to learn how to gesture and act. He was not looking for an authentic inner core and then ways to physicalize and express it. Um, and then Cage, for whom it's just a you know Nietzschean mask beneath you know Nietzschean mask beneath mask beneath mask. It's like where is my face? You know, it's it's sort of not there at all in a way. And um and it's poignant about how that era really has come to an end. The blockbuster era, the wide release era, the kind of gigantic overmarketed like Simpson Bruckheimer production um that's carried by A star and a huge budget and a huge marketing campaign. It's like, it's not the business model anymore. And it's not the basic ethos of the culture either. And it's left Cage kind of neither here nor there. And I think he surprised people, surprised me with Pig, that he could go that quiet. I mean, this one, it reminded me of a movie I love whose charm is that it's, if it were any better, it wouldn't be as endearing, which is the old Charles Grodin, Robert De Niro buddy pick Midnight uh, Run. Yeah, I mean just like some of those moments are between Grodin and De Niro are amazing, right? And 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 this approximates them that it they're just so lovably silly with each other and what they're bringing out in one another. And shout out to Pascal. That is a tough tough role and he's marvelous in this movie.
3: No, it's true. I mean, I, I, every everything that you're saying applies completely to the scenes between the two of them. There's a fantastic scene where they explore the shrine, the Nick Cage shrine that this Playboy billionaire has in his house, and Nick Cage offers to buy this terrible wax figure of himself.
5: <laughs> and
3: uh, I feel like that's everything that this movie should have been. That truly was exploring like the absurd mystery of Nick Cage's off-screen persona. You know, the great bro comedy, and I did feel some Midnight Run goodness. I don't think this is anywhere near the the, the movie that Midnight Run is, but some of that kind of bro comedy on the run happens toward the end, for example. That gag near the end when they're being chased and they switch shoes just because they like each other's shoes. (laughs) And then pr- proceed I, I, to complain about the new shoes that they have on. The, which why would you do that in the middle of being chased by people with guns? It's just there's something so great and absurd oh, it's about so that. Good. It's so good.
2: But I still say
3: I still say the Tiffany Haddish scenes felt like they were written in ten seconds, so that there could yeah, be some kind of action they, plot. They were. Sharon Horrigan is completely wasted as Nick Cage's wife. Uh, She's a very funny she? comedian, and all she gets to do is sort of be the frustrated wife. Not I mean, this could need another pass. The, end of the movie
2: uh, towards the end of the Movie, but yeah, I guess so, she gets know. a
3: tiny moment. But I, I feel like this moment needed it needed one more pass through the old editing machine and and polishing. But that said, the director and co writer Tom Gormican. His previous movie to this, which was called The Awkward Moment, was an absolute flop and was a really, really terrible attempt at a buddy comedy, a sort of comedy about three male roommates. And I remember seeing it and thinking, I, I, I hope that I never have to see anything by that filmmaker again.
2: <laughs> oh, whoopsie.
3: <laughs> and so I have to hand it to Tom Gormikin because if this had been his debut, I would have said, I cannot wait to see what he does next. And that is how I feel about him now.
0: I hear you on the underwrittenness, but also this movie is an hour forty-five. It goes by in a breeze. Like I don't know that I needed to like seriously understand Tiffany Haddish's motivation, and I actually think the strength of the performances across the board makes it all work. Like mm-hmm. I, I think Sharon Horgan actually turns an underwritten part into like a fully realized human, and it just reminded me how much I love Sharon Horgan and everything. And yeah, Tiffany Haddish and her sidekick Ike Barinholtz are slightly cardboard cutouty, but. Uh, not in any way that made me sad. You're right.
3: Maybe I'm just being churlish. I mean, this movie is a fun romp. It doesn't go as deep as it could. It's not adaptation two. (laughs) And maybe because of its closeness in theme and subject matter to adaptation, I was expecting a little bit more from it on that front. But I completely agree. We all need more short running movie romps with goofy, fun performances. And this is totally that. So yes, go be like Julia and not like me. (laughs)
2: Yes. Ignore the infamous churl Dana Stevens and go see this movie. It's fun. All right. It's uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent starring Nick Cage. It's in theaters now. It's not streaming, but check it out. It's really fun.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: All right. Now is the moment in our show when we discuss business. Typically, Dana, I'm sure we have some. What's uh, What's up today?
3: Stephen, our only item of business is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. I love this week's Slate Plus segment, Steve, because it is a little bit of a goof on you, but I think you too will enjoy it. This week, we are going to talk about the connection between real and imagined places, a topic that was prompted by last week's episode when we were talking about the show Slow Horses, the British spy drama, and it's about a bunch of deadbeat British spies who work in a place derogatively nicknamed Slough House. Steve then mentioned that Slough is a fictional British town dreamed up (laughs) by the poet John (laughs) Betjeman but then a lot of listeners and I've been keeping up with these emails because I'm getting a kick out of them probably about I don't know a dozen or so listeners have written in to say that Slough is in fact a very real place in Britain although it has been much mocked in British culture including in the show The Office and, uh, and on this new show Slow Horses there is a real life Slough uh, my personal belief is that we now owe Slough a live show And that some institution in that town should reach out to us And invite us to come and visit And experience the wonders of Slough But in the meantime, we are going to do a Slate Plus segment And this was Stephen's idea That we uh, we explore the relationship between real and imagined places Places that are out there in the world And how we imagine them Or imagine non-existent mm-hmm. places in our minds That may sound conceptual But Steve pitched it to us as a Slate Plus idea And I actually think it's a, it's going to be a really fun segment
2: Okay, let me hear Leap in and just say first of all that uh, all dozen or so emails were so gentle and so sweet about it you know nobody seized up and 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 you know pinned me to the wall with this but i did feel it was just clownish on so many levels because i've literally been on an an english train and a london area train passing through slough and thought to myself wow i guess it's a real place and you know Dana, I massively, heartily endorse the idea of a Slough live show. I'd love to do that. That would be so fun.
3: Yes, please. People of Slough, reach out to us. I don't think anybody who actually wrote in was from Slough. I think most of them from other parts of England, but they definitely all responded in its defense, even though a couple of them also poked a bit of fun at Slough. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can hear us talk about Slough and other real and imaginary places in our Slate Plus segment at the end of the show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. What you get when you remember: ad-free podcasts, bonus segments like the one I just described, which exist on many other shows as well, and unlimited access to all of the writing on slate.com. I should also mention that you would be supporting our work and the work of all our great colleagues when you're a member. These memberships matter a lot to Slate and to us. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once more, that's slate.com slash culture plus.
2: All right, well, better call Saul, of course, it's the spin-off prequel uh from Breaking Bad from creator Vince Gilligan. It stars Bob Odenkirk as Saul, kind of not really actually we open on him as Jimmy McGill and we we follow his evolution into the character we grew to know and equivocally love on Breaking Bad. I should say I have been meaning to watch this show forever. I'm dying to do it. I am not only not caught up, I haven't watched it since the very beginning of the first season. So replacing me for the following segment is none other than Isaac Butler. Isaac, hey, how are you?
4: Good, doing doing well. Just got back from uh, LA Times Book Fest, and boy, are my arms tired.
2: (laughs) So, of course, you're the author of The Method, the story of uh, method acting in the 20th century. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we have a clip uh, from the show, of course. Dana, why don't you uh, why don't you set it up?
3: Sure. In this clip, you're going to hear Bob Odenkirk as Jimmy McGill, who, as you'll hear in this segment, is starting to reinvent himself at this point as the lawyer Saul Goodman, talking to Raya Seahorn as Kim. They're in a Mexican restaurant, and she's helping him to scheme about how to create this new persona.
4: So Saul Goodman
1: drives a brown Ford Taurus. Detroit calls that taupe,
4: I believe. Don't you think Saul Goodman would drive something with a little more flair? Such as? (laughs) I don't know. Definitely
0: American made. Something showy. And Saul Goodman has an office. Something eye-catching.
1: Good location.
4: By the courthouse?
1: Yeah. A cathedral of justice. Oh,
4: a cathedral
1: of justice. Okay, yeah. We should start looking for something for you. I mean for sold.
4: Sold? When do we start? Saturday's good. Saturday it is.
3: All right. I'm going to jump into this conversation with the caveat to Julia and Isaac that I've seen every minute of this show, except for the very last episode, which I'm about to watch next time I have a free moment to watch it. So if you spoil anything, I will end our friendships immediately. But I will start off (laughs) by saying I'll start off by saying that this is probably my favorite show on TV right now, but it has been a long wait between season five and season six, the last season of the show, which just started a couple weeks ago because of the pandemic. And, of course, because of Bob Odenkirk's heart attack, um, which I think slowed down filming considerably. Uh, Thank goodness he's better now. And, you know, I think he's totally on the mend. But um, I'm so, so happy to have it back. I just I want to hear a little bit about about y'all's history with it and um, just sort of whether you agree with me that it's maybe the best thing going on TV right now. Granted, I am not the biggest TV consumer, so maybe I don't have the right to say that. But please
0: support me or attack me. I mean, you have the right to say whatever you want in the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Dana. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to tell you that you don't have the right to make a wild pronouncement, uh, especially since I have my own history of making wild pronouncements about this show. I remember completely falling in love with it, being really blown away. And at the end of season two, I wrote a piece for Slate called Better Call Saul is Better than Breaking Bad um, and, you know, made the argument that for for all of the hype and heat and Fervor surrounding Breaking Bad, which was a wonderful show. The Better Call Saul was even better, more interesting, more concerned with more important aspects of the human condition, more mundane and thus more important aspects of the human condition. Um, and that essentially the team that had been operating at the absolute top of its game in, in bringing Breaking Bad to its kind of crescendoing peak and finale, like they really dropped that show without a couple sad seasons of of flabby denouement, um, had put all of their force into this really fascinating character who we know is going to turn out to be a smarmy drug lawyer, but who we meet as this like sweet, earnest guy with a talent for mischief who is you know just trying to be good basically like it's about the struggle to be a good person and um and what it means to be a good person and i just absolutely loved it i i think the question for me that i'm still puzzling through is as it has evolved in the in the past few years like do i do i do i think it is one of the best shows in the history of television which i said i thought it would turn out to be perhaps um i think it's pretty darn great But I want to hear what Isaac has to say before we wrestle with that big question.
4: Yeah, I absolutely love the show. I love it so, so much. I miss it. I missed it so much when it wasn't on, you know, in that long gap that uh, my wife had never seen Breaking Bad but loves Better Call Saul. And so we, you know, I rewatched all of Breaking Bad because, you know, we just needed to get that fix of that particular color of yellow (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know POV shots from objects and you know weird cinematography Um, I think it benefits a lot from Breaking Bad having had so many years to figure itself out that was one of the things that the rewatch really drove home for me is that season one of Breaking Bad is just a very different show from even the second season that what we think of as its visual style actually doesn't evolve until very late it's not until the episode fly uh, directed by The Last Jedi's Ryan Johnson that like all of its visual pieces come together. And and Saul as a character evolves significantly over the course of that show. And I think Odenkirk does as an actor as well. So it benefits from all of that stuff, but I thought it took all of that show's materials and questions in a way more interesting direction. And also, I just think that, you know, Jimmy and Kim and, you know, Michael McKeon's character, Chuck, I just think they're more interesting, rich characters characters frankly um and i think ria seahorn's a real find i had never seen her in anything before we both took acting classes at the same place in dc so you know i feel kinship there Uh, um and uh i i love it i will say that i'm the kind of person who really like wrestles with the things i love so there's problems i have with it i get every time it's sort of really setting up something in breaking bad i lose interest a little bit but um whenever it's just about them and the characters and their evolution I, I just I just love it.
3: Yeah, I was going to say something about what Julia mentioned about the, the mundanity of the show. I know that I've pounded the table about Better Call Saul to some people, and they've said, oh, well, Breaking Bad wasn't really for me. It was too violent. You know, I, I can't handle the gore. I think that some one of the big strengths of Better Call Saul. Not that it doesn't have plenty of, you know, violence and suspense in it. It's a show about crime, after all, and about, you know, somebody slowly falling into the underworld of crime. But it is a much... Gentler isn't the right word, but it it is a show that is much more about relationships and about psychology. Not that those things were not strong in Breaking Bad as well, but there's not as much need for there to be a big kind of action sequence in every episode or for everything to be tending toward a life or death crisis. When those happen in Saul, it's more like it's a season-ending moment, right? And and then the the repercussions of that moment of violence kind of unfold over the next season. I'm thinking in particular of last season and the trek through the desert. And this doesn't spoil yeah. anything if you haven't seen it, but yeah, there's a very harsh episode that has to do with Bob Odenkirk's character Saul being or, or Jimmy being stranded in the desert and getting out of it, and the trauma of that really is unfolding now, even still in the beginning of season six. And it even took a while, and I like this in the show for the physical traces of that trek through the desert to kind of fade away from his body, you know, his sunburn and his kind of haggard look from that day. Uh, so I I think that this show is a little bit. Again, gentle is not the right word, but it's a little more sensitive about dealing with trauma and the after effects of trauma than something like Breaking Bad, which, you know, I, I can understand that some viewers themselves felt
0: traumatized by. Here's my question for you guys. When I was proclaiming the joys of this show, I spoke a lot about the kind of confidence of its pacing, how it wasn't afraid to like show us, you know, all 27 steps of, Mike Trout, like drilling holes in a garden hose for a purpose unknown and, you know, really relishing his like methodical care with the drill bits and the dappled Albuquerque sun on his shoulders and, you know, the, 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 play the sense of play with showing us something unexpected or putting the camera somewhere weird or you better believe if they're spreading peanut butter on toast your camera's going to be right in that peanut butter jar and watching that knife swirl it around you know like (laughs) has any of that worn thin for you i i feel like does it ever seem a little too in love with its own quirky camera tricks like some of those have worn less well for me
4: over the seasons The one time that I actually felt that way, and I I feel like this is not a spoiler, but the cold open of this week's episode, which is a a cryptic image that does not make sense until the last 30 seconds of the episode— uh that unfolds over what feels like 30 minutes it's like two minutes um you know sometimes i'm like all right i know i know what show i'm watching you don't have to remind me what show i'm watching no
5: it's
0: really two Uh, minutes i mean data this
4: is not a spoiler it's like two minutes of a camera roving through dirt and weeds like (laughs) you can't even really tell
0: (laughs) yeah like are those roots more brown expanse
4: but in general i just love i i don't know i really enjoy its visual style you know, it's been many, many years because it was also Breaking Bad's late visual style. And um, uh, I I am just, uh, I don't know, I'm a sucker for it, I think.
3: I mean, as, thinking about it as, a, as an expanded universe of Breaking Bad, I'm not sure that I totally agree, Isaac, that that everything that sets up um, Breaking Bad stories that would come later is a negative part of the show and some of it I I feel like is some of the most successful multiverse building I've ever seen like what happens to Gustavo Fring right major character in Breaking Bad we go back and see some of his story previously to that time and you know I feel like I understand that character in a completely different way same thing with Mike Ehrmantraut you know everybody's everybody's favorite expressionless tough guy from Breaking Bad we see a lot more of his family and backstory and just in general I mean you could never have seen a minute of Breaking Bad and not know it existed and I think this would still be a completely coherent universe of fascinating individuals. But if you have seen it, I I actually think that some that, um, some of that exploration of character backstory is as good as anything I've seen. And also because I feel like we haven't shouted out enough of the acting besides Bob Odenkirk's. I mean, Bob Odenkirk is the heart and soul of this show. It's impossible not to love and admire him as an actor as you watch it but I mean, Rhea Seahorn and is extraordinary. I cannot wait till she gets her much deserved Emmy for the role of playing Kim. Jimmy and Kim's relationship is probably my favorite love relationship on TV right now. You believe that they love each other, you believe that they understand each other, you believe that they're terrible for each other, you know, you you understand what they're like as roommates, as business partners, as you know, friends, as enemies. It's just so complex and well written and gorgeously acted. And also, I think we have to just shout out Michael Mando, who plays Nacho. Uh, I won't he's spoil incredible. too much about who this character is, but the, the, he's got a big story arc going for him right now at the beginning of this season. And I can tell they're going to be putting a lot more of the story on Nacho's shoulders. And I don't think there's been a secondary character on either of these two shows, Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, that is, you know, as um, extraordinary to explore and as well acted as as Nacho is turning into.
4: I mean, one of the nice things about a show that frequently has episodes without a ton of dialogue in them—you know, there's long, long, silent, wordless stretches—it almost feels like a Le Cirque Rouge or something, with how little dialogue there can be in an episode—is that you really get to see. The actors show off their abilities to listen and think in a way that feels active and interesting without indicating too much. And maybe this is because of all the you know methody stuff I've been focusing on over the past few years. But it's really refreshing and, and fun. Like Nacho is a man of few words, but you really feel this kind of agonizing struggle he goes through over over the course of the show. Kim is arguably in some ways I think a kind of underwritten character in those early seasons, but Rhea really makes her into a fully-fledged, complicated human being in a really profound way That that's really stunning to watch.
3: Well, and yeah, her, her trajectory in terms of, you know, whatever we're going to call it, Breaking Bad, moving toward a world that's less ethical than the world she starts out in, is really complicated because she doesn't even directly benefit necessarily from the the criminal activities that she's being drawn toward. There's almost a sense, and it's it's getting better written as the show goes on, but there's almost a sense that her character just wants to flirt with the dark side for, for the sake of doing so. You know, I mean, she's a public defender. She's obviously somebody who's very invested in the public good. She quits a corporate legal job because she doesn't want to be a money grubber. And yet she kind of can't tear herself away from this fascination with, you know, her boyfriend who is is falling into the criminal underworld. So it's just it's a great motivation for her character. And I fear for her every single week. <laughs> the idea that something will happen to Kim keeps me up nights because I love that character so much.
0: Your point about Kim's arc is, to me, still what is so impressive about the show. Like, it is a show actually about more modest moral choices. Like, yes, they're flirting with the dark side. Yes, there are drug cartels. Um, But somehow the scale and scope of the criminality and potential violence feels like it falls more towards the mundane, more towards the caper, more towards the believable. It's not quite as operatic as... Much of what we encountered in Breaking Bad and that, you know, that that mundanity allows the creators, uh, and we haven't mentioned that that, um, Peter Gould and and Vince Gilligan are are both running this operation, but um, they use this world to explore just, like, basic moral choices. Like, Kim is so fascinating and so well acted. And, you know, I sort of think what she's drawn to is the, the the feeling of exercising her own powers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, she's incredibly capable. She can apply her capability to help, like, southwestern banks expand and, like, bulldoze neighbors in their effort to set up new branches, you know, but that doesn't feel right. She could just use her extreme powers of competence to, like, be a normal, straight-up public defender and help people with their problems and, and fight for justice. And she does derive pleasure from that as she says this season and yet and yet even for kim it's not enough and i don't i don't know that i'm sure she's being lured or misinfluenced by jimmy i mean that's what i that's what i love about it is sort of the the complex play between the two of them, of the push-pull, of the, of the fun, of the feeling of pulling something off and, and using the things that make them superhuman, their Elon Musk superpowers, which are not about boring companies, but um, just the ability to finesse situations. Like they're drunk on those small powers um, and, and, and that compulsion occludes their moral choices and it's just mesmerizing to watch.
3: All right. Well, we have three fists pounding the table for this one. Maybe you disagree with us and you have beefs with Better Call Saul. If so, you can write to us at CultureFest at Slate.com. But all I can say is, folks, give it a chance if you haven't, in my opinion, and apparently Julius and Isaac's two best show on TV. Okay, on to the next segment.
2: All right. Well, the news has recently broken that Elon Musk, the CEO, of course, of Tesla and the world's richest man has an accepted offer to buy Twitter. We should say that this is pending a shareholder vote and uh, uh, Musk's own due diligence, whatever. He'll probably end up owning uh, outright for a $44 billion price tag uh, Twitter. We're joined by Will Arimus of The Washington Post uh, to discuss this. Will, welcome to the show. Good to be here. It's great to have you. We've missed you. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been years. Yeah. Let me quote you a tweet from Jack Dorsey, of course, the founder of Twitter. Uh, In principle, I don't believe anyone should own or run Twitter. It wants to be a public good at a protocol level, not a company. Solving for the problem of it being a company, however, Elon is the singular solution I trust. I trust his mission to extend the light of Of consciousness. Will, let's uh, start you off with uh, it's not exactly a softball. Do you trust Elon Musk to extend the light of consciousness?
1: (laughs) I do not trust Elon Musk to extend the light of consciousness. I think what Jack is trying to get at there is like all of Elon's projects are about saving the world, at least the ones before Twitter, right? Like Tesla is about getting us transitioned to green energy, and then SpaceX is about giving us an escape plan so we can all go to Mars if things go to hell here on earth. I don't know exactly how Twitter fits into the extending the light of consciousness idea. I think that Jack is probably rationalizing to some extent, the fact that the richest guy in the world can do whatever he wants and what he wants at this moment appears to be buying Twitter. I think that he does have one point buried in all the hokiness there though, which is that Twitter has never been all that great of a company. It just doesn't make a lot of money. Advertisers don't love advertising on a site that's full of like toxicity and breaking news and vitriolic arguments. It's never been able to show the growth that Wall Street wants. Maybe if there's an upside here, it's that now that it has a private owner who has more money than God, it can focus on being a better product and not have to worry quite as much about being a better business.
0: It feels like the other big question slash fear that people and I guess maybe by people I mean journalists that I work with have is you know Twitter has many communities that rely on it although not as many as the people who hope to make money from Twitter would like one of those communities is certainly journalists Twitter's emphasis on the real-time means that it is a great place for real-time watching of sports and culture and real-time discussing of things that happen whether joyous or calamitous um and you know, Elon Musk's relationship with journalists and journalism isn't the least fraught among our billionaires. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so I think the question of what will happen to journalism and Twitter is a big one. And then, you know, a, another big question is, will Elon Musk um, revoke the ban on Trump's Twitter account? I mean, Twitter has been a very different place for the last couple of years without our all, all caps former POTUS on it. Um Do you have a sense of what indicators suggest Musk might do in these regards, or at least what people's fears are or how people suss out what the options might be?
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think the fear on the left is that Musk will come in, ban all the journalists, reinstate Donald Trump, Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos and turn uh, Twitter basically into one of these like far right platforms like Getter or Rumble, I can't even remember all the names, Truth Social, you know, the Trump platform. I think that's not likely. He did say yesterday something that could be a little reassuring, which is, is he said, to me, free speech means that even my worst critics should have a voice on this platform, so he is, is indicating that he wants to be tolerant of people's speech, whether he agrees with them or not. Now, I think that the real tension and one of the things that people who, who work at Twitter and care about Twitter are worried about is that Musk seems to have a somewhat simplistic vision of free speech you know twitter until about 2016 or 2017 had a fairly laissez faire attitude towards speech it was kind of anything goes it was like the answer to bad speech is more speech and it was a pretty horrible place i mean it's you know it's not a it's not a it's not all daisies and unicorns today but it's it can be easy to forget that 5 years ago it was much worse like people would harass and abuse and bully each other with impunity and users could do almost nothing about it unless they happened to be famous and could like get jack dorsey on the phone so I think that there is a fear that that if he doesn't quickly evolve his views on what free speech means and start to understand that, like, just allowing anybody to say anything, including harassing other people, will actually chill the speech of a lot of people and make people feel unsafe to speak up. If he doesn't evolve those views, then Twitter could go back to sort of the bad old days and, and just gradually degrade over time.
3: Yeah, there's a good uh, column about this by Anand girard on in The New York Times today talking about negative versus positive free speech, which is not a, a division of categories I th- I'd heard before, but I think it's related to what you were just saying, right? I mean, there's, there's the division the of free speech that Elon Musk is articulating when he says, even my worst critics should have a place on Twitter— and the form of free speech that protects the speech of people who would otherwise be bullied and harassed. So there's, I mean, I just think that there's a very thin line between, hey, my critics can say everything they want. I'm all for free speech. And, you know, Nazis can say everything they want and rapists can say everything they want. And, you know, that kind of vision of free speech that, as you say, applied before on the platform and that at least some measures had been taken to try to correct for.
1: Yeah, and Twitter had moved toward that vision of sort of more positive free speech over time and it had been working on a lot of projects in that vein. It had also been working on a lot of interesting research projects about bias in algorithms and how it can correct for like racial bias in image cropping algorithms. Uh, They had teams doing really interesting work. In fact, it had become a place where folks disenchanted with other social media companies had gone to work. So I have sources at Twitter who used to work at Facebook and who moved to Twitter so that they could feel good about the work they were doing. I think a lot of people felt like the company was moving in the right direction on some of those fronts and they're concerned that, that Musk will take them back to where they used to be. There was a good Charlie Warzel uh, newsletter in the Atlantic today. Who, he, was, he wrote this story for BuzzFeed years ago the, where Twitter was called a honeypot for assholes and that's what they've been moving away from. And he said, you know, that's what, that's what people are worried Musk will move it back to. I
3: mean, it's kind of hard to see what his motivation for buying Twitter would be anyway if it wasn't that, right? I mean, it's one of two things. Either he is acquiring it as a toy and he's not really going to mess with it that much at all and is just going to go on to his next showboating big buy of a company or whatever it is. Or he is specifically buying it because he wants to put Trump back on, you know, unleash the um, version of free speech that he prefers and make it a worse place. And I guess that's what, you know, everyday users of Twitter like me are scared will happen that the tone of the platform will change. And while I personally haven't experienced harassment as a big problem, I would definitely want to get off the platform if I felt like that was rising, you know, in, in other communities. I wouldn't want to be part of a platform that started to feel more and more musky by the day, even. If it didn't directly affect my Twitter,
0: I want to come. I I want to ask you, Dana, and Will, about your own evolving relationships with Twitter as the two Twitter power users on this. But, but before we do that, I just, I just want Will your assessment of Musk, like. There, there seems to be no figure in American capitalism right now that is more like a Bond villain. Like he was, like <laughs> I'm, go- I'm, I'm gonna master technology and outbid all of the car companies in the world and figure out how to make the first electric car and make it cool and make it good. And then, like he did, and it worked. Like you know, he, he, he did advance the cause of electric cars. You can debate, you know, about the environmental impact of elect the electrification of cars. I gather, but you know, he, he, he like did that you know then being like rockets next like there's like a physicality a manufacturing physicality to the stuff that he has seemed interested in that is both intriguing and also as part of what makes him seem like a character rather than a human um the, twitter is such like a small pixely place it's so virtual like it just seems so out of character and he seems increasingly unhinged as the days go on which may be true of all of us but it seems particularly true of him like what is what what's your read on him i know he's famously unreadable will but you've been studying this space
1: for years yeah there aren't a lot of Real world situations where the logic of the Marvel Cinematic Universe applies, but Elon Musk might be the exception. You know, I mean, he, you know, famously the, the Tony Stark character was partly modeled on him. Uh, he really sees himself as a superhero. I think. I think he he grew up feeling that he was smarter than everybody around him. That pe- that the world was run by sheep. That he alone can kind of step outside the matrix and see things as they are. And so he started. These companies to, you know, with goals noth- nothing less ambitious than saving the world. Um- Tesla would get us off of uh, of carbon-based fuels. SpaceX would give us the escape hatch to Mars. Uh, Neuralink would, would fuse machine and human uh, as never before. But now, recently, he's like gotten into companies that have sort of more mundane goals, like bo- the boring company, which digs tunnels, is supposed to solve traffic. Like, okay, I guess. It, it kind of feels like he's so deep in his own head now that anything that just annoys him in his daily life becomes an absurd session that he wants to solve. So like he doesn't like traffic. All right. He's going to solve traffic with, with tunnels in the hyperloop. He now spends a ton of his time on Twitter. He's an addict like me, probably more than maybe even more than me. Uh, he posts memes. He has all these followers who adore him and respond to everything he says. This is his, this is his metaverse. I mean, this is his, this is his digital world where he feels like he is this king or, or God-like figure. And so of course it matters deeply to him how that world is run. It matters deeply to him that he doesn't get kicked off someday for saying the wrong thing. I, I genuinely think that part of his m- rationale here, whether he realizes it or not, is just his own, his own personal fear of losing access to Twitter or having it be run in a way that ruins the experience for him. Uh, so I I just think he's he's blinkered by his own experience. He wants to make sure that Twitter works in a way that works for him because it's a huge part of his life now.
3: That's... Pretty scary. <laughs> I mean, just in a in a almost existential sense that anyone has enough money to you know to have that kind of power and to be able to extend their personal brain universe uh, in a way that that affects the entire world. Uh, before we wrap, though, I wanted to hear a little bit about since you know you just called yourself a Twitter addict. As Julia pointed out, you and I are probably the people that would be the most affected by this if the company does change or the tone of the site changes because we're there all the time. So, what do you think? If um, what would it take for you to quit Twitter? And, um, and what is your relationship to the site right now before Elon Musk has taken it over?
1: So I, I live in Delaware and I work remotely. And so for me, Twitter is my portal to the world of media and the world of, of politics and public life. It's, you know, I I can go on there and, and discuss ideas or trade jokes with people who are in the same professional world as me. And whereas my neighbors here in Delaware have you know, may not share those interests. So it's really important to my life in, in like a genuine way, as much as we all talk shit about Twitter and how what a horrible hell site it is. Um, I don't see myself I'm ashamed to say I don't see myself leaving Twitter anytime soon I think actually the people though who will be most affected are people uh, are people of color are women are trans people are Jewish people anybody who is the target of hate on Twitter I think has to really worry about what Musk's ownership augurs for the future of that platform and I would not blame anybody who's who's making preparations to find some other portal to the wider world than Twitter given this change in ownership.
3: Yeah, I think I think I'm somewhere somewhere near you in terms of my usage although I don't, you know, live somewhere that that I consider remote from other places. The pandemic made us all remote from all other places and somehow in the past 2 years as I've said before on this show Twitter kind of became my workplace. You know, it feels like the closest thing we have to a shared workspace as journalists. Which is also why I put I put limits on my usage, and I try not to go on on weekends. I try to make it actually feel like a workspace that I don't always have to be in because it can bring you down. But yeah, it would really be a shame if it becomes a place only where, you know, where bullying is the main activity, because I think it is actually a good place for fostering work relationships and even real life friendships, and certainly for exchanging real time information. So, and, and I mean, honestly, Jack, I hate to say it, but Jack Dorsey is right when he says that it shouldn't be a privately owned company. It feels to me, just like Facebook or any of those places that this should be a public utility that's regulated, you know, then that, that's a whole other conversation that's obviously not going to happen. But at the very least, as, as you were saying, it should not be owned by you know, the closest thing we have to a Bond villain who's petting a baby albino kangaroo as he makes his decisions.
1: Yeah, I I meant to complete the thought earlier that, you know, the Marvel universe doesn't have a lot to tell us about the moral logic of real life. But I think one thing it gets right that applies to Elon Musk is that there's a thin line between being a a superhero and a supervillain. And Musk is, is always walking right on that line.
2: Will, you gave us the the perfect tagline there. Uh, It's great to have you back, and uh, let's do it again soon. We'll keep a close eye on this space, as they say.
1: Thanks. It was great to talk to you.
2: Ah, right now is the moment in the podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have?
3: Steve, I have twin endorsements, or rather cousin endorsements, both involving descendants of the Mankiewicz brothers. So, this past weekend, I went to the LA Times Book Festival to be on a panel actually with our beloved Isaac Butler, who was just on this show. Um, He was talking about his new book, The Method. I, of course, was talking about Cameraman. And our other panelist was named Nick Davis, who has a new book called Competing with Idiots about the Mankiewicz brothers, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, the screenwriters, directors, you know, Hollywood forces of, of the mid 20th century. He is actually a member of the Mankowitz family. Herman is his grandfather. Joe is his great uncle. And his book, in addition to exploring them and their careers, talks a little bit about his family life and his relationship, his mother's relationship to that family. Uh, it's a wonderful book. So I'm endorsing Competing with Idiots by Nick Davis. And then as it happens, while I was in LA at the LA Times Festival of Books, I was missing another festival, the TCM Classic Film Festival, something I've always wanted to go to, and maybe I will attend one day. And I happened upon a clip where Ben Mankowitz, a uh, cousin of Nick Davis, the author, and who is a descendant of Joe Mankiewicz, Herman's brother And who is also, of course, famously a host on TCM Interviewing Bruce Dern And he interviews him about his whole career Bruce Dern is an unbelievably funny storyteller Just such a sharp mind uh, And a really, really fun interview And that clip is uh, is up online now So we'll put a link to that on the show page And we'll also put a link to Competing with Idiots, Nick Davis's book
2: That is amazing. I mean, I would love to hear the Bruce Dern. I mean, talk about a guy who got so bound up in his own star persona playing psychos in 70s paranoid thrillers, and it seemed to seep into him, maybe superficially, so that he's out there as a crack storyteller, you know, that's that's really cool. I really want to hear that. Uh, Julia, what do you have?
0: I have an endorsement that's actually like a— uh, an RFP request for proposals for uh, for unpaid labor by our listeners. Um, so I was I took a spring break in Hawaii uh, uh, last month, and um, we all got COVID and had to stay in our hotel rooms and it, it snack. But I did at the very end get to go snorkeling for a day. And um, I'm not a huge snorkeler. I haven't done it a ton in my life. Like I never went to anywhere tropical growing up. Um, So it's not something I've been doing very long and if you've ever done it you know it's like so weird and beautiful and you feel it feels crazy to be seeing this underwater world and all the fishes are so extraordinary they look like little beautiful sugar candies like with their spun sugar stripes and swirls and why are they those colors and you know I probably saw 40 different gorgeous fishes and then because I'm a birder I was like, what do I do with this observation? And I like came out and I started Googling like fish guides. And like I wanted to apply the lens of birding to snorkeling and like go on eFish and like identify the fish I'd seen and mark the fish down. But I don't get the sense that that is what snorkel scuba culture is. Like I don't feel like the underwater watchers are like species collectors in the way that we avian fans are so I my my ask I guess my recommendation is snorkeling like if you have an opportunity to snorkel snorkel or maybe my recommendation is beautiful fish like I don't have more specific information than that but really what I want is for the no doubt abundant snorkel scuba experts among our listeners of of whom I am sure there are at least a handful to explain to me like what do you do when you're like a serious snorkeler, like, do you learn the identities of the fish or do you not bother? And if you learn them, do you record them or do you not bother? I want like, please explain snorkel culture to me through the lens of bird culture. If if you are both a snorkeler and a birder, even better. So that's my unpaid RFP. Please write us at com and uh, sate my curiosity about what happens when you get deep into fish fandom.
2: Okay, well, I have this somewhat... Sorry, fate of endorsing something that I really want to pound the table on and suspect a vanishingly small percentage of listeners are gonna follow up on. But but I seriously encourage you to do it. Last night, I was kind of whiling away the very pleasant evening at home. I'd left NPR on after Terry Gross had gone off the air. And a local show came on. I'd never heard of it before. It comes from some, you know, independent production shop that sells to my local NPR station. It's called Alternative Radio. For all I know, they've got a huge following. And the person says, "It sounds like a live event." Um, and the host says, "Okay, tonight we have Timothy Snyder to talk about the origins of the Holocaust." And um, on comes Snyder. Of course, the you know he's now very well known for On Tyranny, the book On Tyranny. His Various uh, extremely learned takes on the uh, Russian and Ukraine situation. And uh, the Yale professor who contributes regularly to the New York Review of Books. Anyway, I was like, I sure, I'll listen to Timothy Snyder. I'm going to admire him to no end. I've endorsed stuff of his before. And Snyder did the most interesting thing. He had, it comes from 2015. So obviously, pre invasion of Ukraine. Um, and he understood that he had one hour in this format, and he's talking about a book that he's just published, though he never explicitly says that, but it's the thesis of a of a recently published book of his at the time, Black Earth. And so he talks without for one hour without taking one breath or pausing. I've never heard anything like it. Uh, it sounded extemporaneous. He wasn't reading, but it was so lucid that you never wanted him to slow down and re-say anything. Uh, it wasn't disconcerting. You felt as soon as you caught the tune of it, you were you were like, I want to hear all of this and I want him to follow it from beginning to end. And what he does is he says two things about the, the Holocaust that I don't think I think the book the, the book is known for having a set of quite original insights into the causes and the process you know prosecution of the of the Holocaust. Um, he says First of all, he begins by saying it's the product of a super highly developed worldview on the part of Hitler. So he went back and reread not only Mein Kampf, but basically probably everything Hitler ever wrote. Um, And he shows in a completely new way to me how extermination came to seem inevitable in Hitler's mind. And also the Lebensraum and like the whole, you know... um, Essentially, the invasion of Poland and the Soviet Union were part of this worldview. But secondly, how the Holocaust actually unfolds, the way it unfolds, is as a series of accidents and contingencies that the actual prosecution and carrying out of it happens through a set of unanticipated experiential discoveries by the Nazis as they begin to move east into Poland and, and the Soviet Union. And clearly, they had, you know, a final solution to the Jewish problem in mind all along. He's not, there's nothing exonerating about this theory at all. But it's about why the killing preponderantly took place in Poland and Eastern Europe. And um and it's I, I just cannot I can't tell you just the utter brilliance of the performance, but of course the deep, deeply morally serious implications of it as they apply to 2022. And it's about how a certain worldview develops and how, what its most nightmare implications are, and the parallel to Putin's mentality and how Putin has evolved a mentality of, I mean, most obviously persecution, and um, but also why he would want to expand into Ukraine inexorably. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, you're only making that analogy in your own head. This is, this is from seven years ago. But I, I think we're going to link to the audio, so it's available for anyone to listen to at any point. I would say, you know, I would really, really seriously encourage people to listen to it. I think it was, was an important thing to, to, to learn. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Dana, that was a good one.
3: Stephen, it was a pleasure.
2: You can find links to the things we talked about today at slate.com slash culturefest. And of course, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We love getting your emails um, and we try to respond. The intro music to our show is by Nicholas Prattel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.
4: you